Hello and welcome to the Place-Based Methodologies at UTS podcast series. I am Ilaria Vanni and today I'm here with Caroline Cartier, who is the Professor of Human Geography and China Studies in the School of International Studies. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much. I will start asking you the big question, which is how do you understand place in your research? Place is about lived contexts of human meaning. Um, I currently work on cities in China, and in Chinese, place has particular meanings about lo local and locality, whether it's your neighborhood, your town, your village, while it also conveys dynamic meanings as a consequence of the extraordinary transformation in China in recent decades and the large-scale migration of people from rural to urban areas. So places are dramatically changing, and that's one of the great ways of understanding place is that it's not about a fixed and historic idea of localities uh, being set in time, but an approach that allows us to see the really interesting ways that all sorts of places around the world matter to local people and how they matter locally and globally. Uh, in addition, um, some of the particular conditions of, of looking at place in China is that the Chinese government has encouraged, especially um, smaller cities and towns, to promote their own economic development based on their historic place characteristics. So we see a lot of conscious placemaking and place revitalization. And through this, we can see how people portray deep histories in modern frames of reference. So in that way, um, understanding place, not just in China, but in general, is um, relational. Places are interconnected uh, in relations of scale. Um, so that is to say, we can think of place in relation to mobilities, mobilities among people moving among places as we travel from town to city to region and beyond. Our own embodied activity is a site of mobile place experience. So the idea of place is not static and fixed, as if a bounded area on a map. Uh, place and global are not in opposition. They're really interconnected. Place is alive. And um, so to, to study um, place in this um, understanding, what kind of methodologies do you use? I always adopt a mixed methods approach. Um, not just because it sounds like it covers everything, but really because it's an approach to um, keep in mind always to identify and compare different types of empirical materials and in relation to a set of concepts for thinking about place and space. So this is because um, in places undergoing extraordinary change uh, in recent decades, we need to adopt methodologies in a kind of dynamic and flexible way that can capture that change and to be aware of them. So our approach begins with um, actually often going first to see the site or the local landscape, to assess it, um, to visit it, to see and photograph local conditions, and then thinking about collecting different types of materials, kind of a processual methodology to see how one set of information, such as published information about the place, a plan, um, some statistics or data, how it compares to what we actually see. 
So for example, if the site visit does not show what is in the plan about that place, then we put aside some of this published material and shift toward a more local historical understanding in relation to local people's views. We might shift, for example, to greater emphasis on interview uh, in context. And so this mixed, mixed methods approach um, also incorporates maps to see how places change. But this might sound counterintuitive since any given map has fixed information. Um, the goal, though, is to compare multiple maps of the same place to identify their differences. Uh, because in China, and not only in China, um, but China literally changes the map, uh, changing the area of a place even within neighborhoods. So a map that was produced 10 years ago may not be accurate now. So by looking at how China changes the map, we can learn a lot about potential impacts on places and the kinds of changes that people are experiencing. And once we have three or four maps to bring to our discussion with people, it can be really effective for getting the conversation going and saying, well, wow, it looks like things have changed a lot here. What do you remember about um, how things were like 10 years ago when this was the map? And this can generate a lot of interesting insights. Wonderful. And do you have a definition? If you, you know, if you had to define your methodologies in a, uh, in a short sentence, what would you say? I think that the methodological approach in this, what is a kind of complex mixed methods approach, I tend to always think of it really in the relationship between place and space. It's the way I think as a geographer. And it's a kind of dialectic, a word that really means the relationship between two or more situations or ideas or possibilities. And this place and space relationship um, is actually pretty easy and interesting to think about if we take an example of how space is often considered the abstract sense of, of space out there, space on the map space in the mind of planners or space of an articulated, uh, say, a city plan or a regional plan. And plans, spatial plans, are often treated as an ideal project, uh, locating housing, networks of transportation, environmental sustainability. But they're often conceived, indeed, on a piece of paper or in a visual representation, as if on a greenfield site or a blank slate. But in reality, uh, few such blank, so-called blank sites actually exist, especially in highly populated um, places and regions, including all over China. And so what, say, government planners think about for the plan, the ideal plan, and what local people care about, it can vary, and it can be very different, especially in countries where governments have particular designs about trying to compel rapid change. So in China, um, millions of people have had to leave their farms, their villages, their hometowns to make way for new urban development, and they really have had to leave. Um, and this is one way that cities and urban development becomes directly connected to the fate of places and how people experience them. And so thinking about place and space, which sometimes, even in the literature and the scholarship and you know, concepts and theory, can even be mixed. 
sometimes confused a little bit uh, or interrelated in some ways that aren't always clear. If we keep in mind this abstract sense of space, of producing ideal plans and maps, and the realities of kind of complex, even messy, heartfelt, um, lived local conditions as place context, then we can bring into relationship interconnecting diverse views that often actually result in maybe even contentions between governments and local people and different ways of thinking about place and how we can generate new conversations about place sustainability, um, place um, interest for cultural and historical projects, and uh, sustainability uh, over time and how we can not just um, conserve places in environmental ways, but also in terms of the meaning of richness of culture and society in the context of dramatic change, even in, in um, large and world and global cities. So this is a really, um, you know, interesting and in a way fundamental distinction between place and space so that uh, um, it, in a way it comes from your discipline, which is geography. So would you say that uh, your methodologies are used by people in other fields? One of the things that's really interesting about place and the idea of place is the way that it has traveled in interdisciplinary capacities in the past couple of decades. So there's a lot of excitement around the idea of place and the significance of place in the formation of communities and relations between uh, communities and larger society. Um, human geography tends to have a sense that um, there is a theoretical toolkit in which place is really significant in relation to Space, also scale, landscape, and territory. Scale from your house and your neighborhood and your district to your city, your state, your region, your country, and its place in the world and global interconnections, these scale relations. Landscape, often thought of as that visual world that we see out there that we photograph. Um, and also territory, and um, territory um, is also important in my work because it can be thought of in two ways, but in the political sense, it's that area over which governments have some kind of authority or sovereignty, but it's also that way of territoriality of thinking, you know, that you have a strong sense of place, that you have a territorial sense that you want to protect your place from, say, you know, government plans for, uh, urban renewal and redevelopment. So these five concepts often can work together. Um, and the way that these ideas have become interdisciplinary is very exciting, right, in different fields from architecture to politics, anthropology, even to economics, um, regional economies. Um, economists have even adopted uh, the idea of regions, cities and regions, uh, in their methodology in these geographical ideas. Um, and ideas about place, um, I think, you know, they absolutely appeal to historians. And there's a relationship between history and place, since perspectives and ideas about place often evolve historically. 
Um, certainly, my background is in a disciplinary sense in geography, but with an interdisciplinary method because many of the insights about new ways to think about place and how to evolve um, ideas about place in relation to landscape, landscape architecture, come from reading the work and seeing the work of people involved in many, many fields. Uh, and uh, in the past several years, for example, I've become even more interested in um, alternative art and art that uh, represents local issues, art that represents place, and different kinds of artistic practices that are based in local understandings of um, histories of cities and regions. So it's a very exciting kind of interdisciplinary um, passport, if you will. Yes, indeed. And uh, how do you do your field work? And, um, you know, what kind of uh, technologies do you use? And uh, what are your steps? When, um, when I do field work in China, um, and I switch into we do field work, because it's often a team project with colleagues um, uh, who are based in universities in China, who are in urban studies, uh, typically. And the step-by-step -step approach really does begin with advanced planning. And so we have to have advanced planning to form the idea of a team and teamwork. Um, and we often have to develop that through um, pre-existing um, relations or uh, having met at meetings and having... Um, not just emailed and made agreements, but um, shared ideas and discussions. And so there's a lot of advanced planning that takes place through conversation and shared interests in the possibilities of research. And then once we agree to do it, um, we develop a plan usually in writing. We often apply for grants. And as we do that, we become more and more focused on the particular kinds of questions we want to ask and where we want to ask them, and that we have particular places we need to go to to answer these questions. Um, we have particular technologies that we adopt along the way. Um, one of the things I do is treat my camera like a notebook. I use it um, to capture all kinds of visual evidence, and certainly I want images of, of all variety of conditions and local contexts. This can be people in their daily activities, riding dockless bikes, using different kinds of ways of communicating and sharing information <clears throat> on their mobile devices and using them in context. Um, and we have also different kinds of cameras that we take with us for different kinds of quick or quick use or uh, special photography that we need to do. But one of the things I'm often doing <clears throat> is I'm using photography to record text because um, especially when you're working in countries where the language is not English and you need to have absolutely specific records of what the local language is representing or telling you, um, that you use the camera as your notebook. Um, oftentimes, it's also possible in some libraries and government archives to photograph documents. Indeed, photography is often allowed where copying is not. 
So you, you get this situation in which the camera, and especially making sure that you have sufficient space on the disk in your electronic camera, and you have extra disks if necessary, because once you realize how useful the camera is as a notebook, you are using it so much, and there's so much on your disk in your camera that all of a sudden it's full. You may be out all day doing this photography, and all of a sudden your disk is full, and you don't want to edit anything. You better have another disk. You need another disk to put into your camera. So it's about these kind of practical technologies and ways in which they can come together to be incredibly useful. That's right, sometimes you're doing so much work so fast that you don't have time to download into your actual laptop, so have those multiple backup disks for your camera. Um, in China, too, because there's so many historical sites, so many places in which towns and small cities and large cities in, in their various districts have now invested in developing local museums to feature place history. Um, I've even spent many hours in historical exhibitions recording information through photography. So it's become an essential tool. The other thing we do is that we work with cartographers who have geographic information systems, large computer databases, uh, and data systems that record how maps have been changing. So in these ways, by working together, and that's certainly not something any one person can do, but if you have a collaboration with people who are building geographic information systems, we can um, develop questions to ask to see how different data sets about places compare and see how different kinds of changes are emerging from these kinds of uh, comparisons. And then through perspectives of scale from you know, the very local to the district to the city, et cetera, make these comparisons and then draw new maps uh, to show these kinds of changes. And once again, this is, this is partly the reality of working in countries where um, maps are, are not available. And so it's that sense of discovery um, of what is online here may not be online there. And so there's a real reality of creating one's own visuals and creating one's own ways of recording places. And what do you understand from um, you know, this uh, combination of methods during your fieldwork in terms of uh, place? One of the most exciting things that we discover is how much local people want to talk about their place history. They really want to talk about it. And sometimes they really want to talk about it, we discover, is because their historic places have recently been redeveloped and they've had to move. And so when we organize, for example, a focus group or something, and um, we, bring, um, we bring photography, maybe some maps, um, and we have a set of questions for, um, to start things off, we find there's an incredible excitement in people's lived memory about their places. And we also find that it hasn't necessarily been recorded in local archives, or it's, it's alive in their memory because in China, not just China, but because in China, change has taken place so quickly. Cities have been built, new cities have been built in people's lifetimes. And people have these memories of what it was like to grow up in a farm. And then they were in a small town. 
and then they were in a district of a city, and then they had to move to a high-rise tower block, and they, they lived it. And so they have this incredible excitement of thinking back, you know, five years, ten years. And so we can see and experience and hear and record in their conversations the relations of community that they still maintain. So, for example, uh, in one site visit, we experienced um, local villagers, and they said, yes, we are local villagers, but they're in the middle of a city, and they still call themselves local villagers. And they point to a set of high-rise buildings across a parking lot, and they say, yes, <clears throat> my village is in the top half of that high-rise tower. And it's this way that the language combines even in unexpected ways that reflects on this rapid, rapid change. It's really, really interesting. The past is present. And um, you have already, uh, in a way, answered these questions, but would you have any advice for our students who would like to use this set of methodologies or any text that you would recommend they read? I always recommend to students um, to collect different kinds of information and compare them. In a strict methodological sense, we've called this triangulation, the idea that you have maybe three different sets of information that you can compare so you can make sure that the conclusions you're drawing are accurate or not. And then you say, well, mm, these don't compare very well. Let's see what's wrong or Let's see what questions they raise. Um, I think that's a really important approach. Sometimes students want to use one set of information, and as soon as we challenge that, we say, oh, well, mm, it didn't quite answer the question, or the question could be answered in a richer way by looking in, in, at, at different kinds of perspectives. And from different kinds of place perspectives, you know, what does the local community think? What does the city think? What do people from different groups think? What do people from different ethnic groups think? Are there multicultural perspectives? So it's this getting these different perspectives on place is so rich. Um, and there are some, um, some works in published scholarship um, that stand the test of time that are pretty exciting. Um, one, um, one set of work I like is um, the global ethnography work. Um, by um, a um, former professor of sociology called Michael Burrow-Woy. And his global ethnography is really about transcending that distance between the local and the global. It's similar to Doreen Massey's ideas in Global Sense of Place and <clears throat> really strives to see how local contexts may have become connected to all manner of global relations and processes. And so... The local is never just local. But this is one of the things, too, um, that we see sometimes in the scholarship. There can be tensions between the local and the global as if they're opposed. And that place is local and global is international. Uh, but these tensions, um, are there's kind of a myth around that or a false dichotomy or false commensurabilities um, to, to say that you know, these should be separate. So um, it's actually the connections between the local and the global, between places here and places there, um, and transnational, translocal, transregional perspectives. And these are the kinds of interesting ways of thinking about the, the connections 
that transform even um, once remote places into communities that are now connected um, to the world. Um, in the China context, there's an interesting um, edited collection called Translocal China that was um, produced by Tim Oakes and Louisa Shine um, uh, uh, over a decade ago, but is still quite useful in this regard. And uh, could you give us, to finish, an example of uh, this from your own research? One of the most interesting um, sites we've visited in our research on local places in China in relation to how China changes the map is a place that's no longer on the map. So we went to uh, a place that is literally no longer on the map, which was on the map for 600 years, and then government changed the map and merged this place into another one. And so we asked people, they say, well, how do you feel about um, your place now being part of this larger county, this larger district? And people had a lot of passionate things to say about that. And so they recalled their local place history and how it was so important to them. And they had actually developed their own historic publication about their place that's no longer on the map, literally no longer on the map. So. They've now got a two-volume project on remembering um, their historic county and all of the historic sites in it because they want to record it. Um, and so it's this very interesting way in, you know, in which there's a tendency to think that um, place can be fixed or that history is discoverable if we only go to the library, if we do particular kinds of research. But actually, there are countries where certainly the actual location and the place is there, but the actual research tools to discover it, you know, its name as a category in the library, in the archives, is gone in the present record. So how do you discover a place that's no longer on the map? This is one of my current passions in the research that we do. I can't imagine. It's really fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for you. your time. Thank you so much, Alaria. I'm glad to be talking to you today. <laughs>